listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. If you have your Bibles, turn with us. Luke chapter number 6. We're going to pick up in our series. I'll go ahead and tell you, uh, we've tried to figure out how we can make this happen, but uh, many of you know that our missionaries from uh, Wrangell, Alaska, Doug and Nedra Schultz, have been with us for a little while. Make sure that you pray for them. Right now, Nedra is having uh, knee replacements on both knees. So she's recovering now from the first surgery, and then in just a little while after that, she'll go right back under the knife and have that other knee replaced, and then she'll recover from that before they go back to, uh, to wrangle. And so we're glad that they're here, and I know that, uh, that you're glad. And, and you're going to get an opportunity to hear from Doug uh, a couple of times before they leave, but, but in just a few weeks, we're going to have to travel up in, uh, in about mid to late April. We're going to have to travel up to Tacoa because we have a special event that we have to go celebrate. Our oldest son is going to graduate from college. Yes, how cool is that? So if you've got the Oasis Church app, I don't know if you've, uh, if you haven't got that, you need to get it. Download it from the app store because that's got all kinds of fun information. Uh, so we, we put on there a little blurb about the fact that we're going to be taking a, a long sabbatical vacation during the summer coming up in May. And we want to give you some information about that. But we posted a picture of where we were in life when we came in 2008. So just imagine that son of ours standing between us, very small, is now about to graduate college. That's how long we've been around. It doesn't seem like that long. But so in about mid to late April, we'll take off for a very quick turnaround. We're not going to get to be there live. They're going to do it virtually. Boo. Okay. But at least he's going to get to graduate because a lot of the folks that graduated last year didn't get a graduation. So we'll be gone and Doug's going to fill in for us and he'll continue on in our Luke study. And I know that you'll be uh, excited to hear from him. Luke chapter six. Now, In just a few weeks, well, actually, it'll probably be about that same weekend that we're gone and Doug's going to be preaching. About April 29th, I believe it is, a gentleman's going to stand on a stage and he's going to say these words or something similar. He's going to say, with the first pick of the 2021 NFL draft, the Jacksonville Jaguars select, and then he's going to read off a name. Most folks believe he's going to say, the Jacksonville Jaguars select Trevor Lawrence, quarterback, Clemson University. And the, you know, the, the Jaguars fans are going to be going nuts. They're going to be excited because now their quarterback savior has come. And, and then they're going to do a whole nother round of 31 picks followed by a whole nother round of 31 picks. And teams are going to pick names and you're going to see families. Hu- well, you don't, you don't care anything about it. Some of you are sitting there going, I don't even watch the NFL anymore. That's cool. Just indulge me because that's what's going to happen on draft day. 
A lot of drama, a lot of excitement for players. In fact, uh, Stacy and I have a, an acquaintance. We don't know him well, but Ben Cleveland, uh, I think he played guard for the University of Georgia. He's at the Combine. We're hoping for him that he gets picked up around the top. Country boy from where Stacy's from. So we'll be watching with anticipation, but I promise you, every pick that's going to be named, every trade that's going to happen between teams so that I'll go back so that you can go up and you pick him and we'll trade you that is going to be the result of weeks and months and hours and overtime and sleepless nights trying to figure out who we need for a specific spot and who we need to get rid of so we can pay this person for this so that we can have a team that reaches the ultimate prize, which is the Super Bowl. Draft day is about research and analysis and overnight. And it happens in the NBA, it happens in the Major League Baseball, it happens in hockey, but you know, football is the one that gets most of the attention because that's America's sport. It gets all the publicity. We live in a team driven society. Everywhere you look, every shelf of books that you can, in a store you can go buy, you're gonna find things about teamwork, how to develop the best. Team. Even in the Christian bookstores, you'll go into the stores and you'll find whole sections about building the ultimate ministry team. And it's going to be based on strengths and weaknesses. It's going to be based on personality sets and age and perspective and experience. And you know, all of that, there's nothing wrong with that. Because we know that if, if you're going to have an effective team, you need to put some thought into it. You need to make sure you don't have conflicting personalities going at one another in positions that they might be suited for, but not suited for one another. A lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of thought. In fact, I would say many of you are probably on a team of some sort if you work in corporate America. I can think about a team that would not have fit in today's society and it wouldn't fit in that year's society either. It was a team made popular by a 1976 motion picture. Now, if you were watching movies in 1976, raise your hand. Okay, the rest of y'all are babies or hadn't been born or you folks hadn't even got together yet in 76. I remember the movie. It was one of the first ones that I can remember being exposed to. The name of the movie was called The Bad News Bears. Y'all knew it. About a baseball team that was completely unsuited to play baseball. They were the leftovers from all of the other teams. The kids that didn't get picked, the kids that weren't wanted. What you had left was the bad news bears. And to go on top of that, their coach was a drunk. And the best player they could find didn't want to play. He just wanted to be 
the rebel. So the movie was about let's get the coach on the right track. Let's get the players to, to buy into being on the team. And let's teach some of these kids who have never seen a baseball before how to throw and bat. And let's come together. And you know who won it all at the end? The bad news bears. That's Hollywood. I mean, you can do that. You can do it with the, with the flying ducks. You can do it with all kinds of different movies. They just come out on top in the end. Most of the time, you put a bad team together, what you're going to get as a result is failure. And we know that's reality. So we can go to the movies, we can be inspired by these cute stories, and then we walk out of there going, well, that was a fun movie, but it wasn't very realistic because we've been a part of teams that just didn't work, didn't fit, and we failed. And we know that's reality. Luke chapter number 6, where we're going to pick up, we're going to see reality that should have tanked and should have tanked royally because Jesus is going to pick a team of close associates. And you would think if anybody was qualified to pick the best of the best, it would be Jesus. But let's take a look at the group he put together for the most important mission in human history. Luke 6, verse number 12, we see the misfits he chose on purpose. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, in these days, what days? Well, we've just got through with a section where Luke, you know, he's painting the portrait of Jesus through the life of Jesus for his friend or companion by the name of Theophilus. You remember, that's why he's writing Luke. He's writing Luke, the life of Jesus, and Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and they're both written and addressed to Theophilus. So that Theophilus is faith might be grounded in truth, truth about Christ. And so as he's painting this picture, he's shown Jesus in his early ministry, coming into contact with folks and beginning to open the vest a little and begin to to claim some things, begin to show some things that should draw the people into who he was. And in his early ministry, he came into contact with a group of religious leaders known as the chief priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees. These were the individuals who were trained and highly educated in understanding the Old Testament. And they were given the responsibility of teaching those things to the people. How were they supposed to live by faith in Jehovah, Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to Moses? How are we to live our life in anticipation of the one who is to come and bring the thing that God has started through us to completion? We know him to be Messiah. So when Jesus comes on the scene, the ones that should have known him first made it a point to find reasons not to believe, to find holes in his story so that they might move him out of the way because he did not embrace their leadership. He didn't embrace their theology, and he didn't embrace embrace their teaching. 
And so rather than adjusting themselves to him, they set to find holes in his teaching so that they might move him out of the way. And most recently in this chapter, we've seen how that they have gone to bat against Jesus over the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath was a a, a holy day set aside by God for the people so that they might have an opportunity every week to be refreshed. They might have the opportunity every week to just focus their attention on him, that they might have time to be a blessing and an encouragement to one another, and so that they might just simply set aside all their plans and things they had going on so they could be reminded of who was the reason that they have life in the first place. But the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests had concocted this this set of rules that that was to quote-unquote help the people not break the Sabbath law, and, and those rules had become equal with God's Word. And so they saw Jesus not obeying their code, and they accused him of breaking the law. Well, so we'll just step out of this a little bit, and we know that that. Jesus is not just the Son of God, right? He's God the Son, right? And so if we just think about what John's gospel said, in the beginning was the the Logos, the Word. Who is that? That's Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God the Father, and the Word was God. And, 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 And all things were created by him and through him so if the law was given by God to the people who was directly a part of giving the law to the people Jesus in his pre-incarnate situation he was a part and so now they're wanting to hold him accountable for breaking his own rules that he wrote and gave to the people. If anybody knew what was and wasn't an infraction of the rule, it would be the author of the rule. Okay, now let's step back into Luke. So they were going to bat with Jesus against his breaking of their code, the eating of the grain. These disciples ate grain. They said, no, no, you're harvesting and threshing and winnowing. And he's like, no, they're not. They're just plucking off grain heads and eating them because it's hungry he didn't say it but by the way Deuteronomy 23 25 said they could do that they said they couldn't do it on the Sabbath Jesus like no no yeah you don't understand I'm the Lord of the Sabbath I'm the one who knows what they can and can't do trust me if that was against God's word I would have shown them made them mad The next scene Luke shows us in in kind of an escalating format was, okay, on another Sabbath, they were going to put him to another test. There was a fella that that had a a broken and withered and, and diseased hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and they were spying on him, these religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, all those guys together. They're spying on Jesus to see if he will heal a man on the Sabbath. Because if he heals according to their code, he is working. And God said not to work. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, I have a question for you guys. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? What does the word say? And their reply was silence. 
Because they knew the answer, you know the answer. You might not be a follower of Jesus in the room today, and you know the answer to that. What does a holy, righteous God want folks doing on the day has set aside to worship him and to bless one another? Does he want us to do good things or bad things? And you know the answer, and they did too, and they wouldn't reply. Jesus said, okay, is it lawful on the Sabbath to save a life or destroy a life, you say? He made it uncomfortable as he looked around the room. No? 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 Nothing? I think it got real uncomfortable. As these very educated individuals just stood there while he asked a kindergarten question that they could not answer because if they did, then they would have to embrace him and they were unwilling to do so. Jesus said, no? Nobody got an answer? Come here, sir. Stretch out your hand. And as the man stretched out his hand, it was made whole. Jesus didn't work. Jesus didn't farm. Jesus didn't do labor. God the Son just freed a man from a physical ailment in demonstration of his person, his power, and in anticipation of a greater wholeness that was going to come through his work and his work alone. And rather than going, out, what? Hey, no, are you kidding? And being excited and going, Jesus, we're so sorry. How can we be a part of your crew? What do we need to do to get your message out? It made them mad, and Luke said they were furious. Their rage got a hold of them, and it was, it, it was uh, outside of, of normal function. They just got triggered, left, and decided they had to destroy him. So the line has been drawn in the sand by Jesus. You're either with me or you're with them. But truth is with me, they are leading you away from God. Well, in that same reality, as Jesus draws his line between himself and his opposition, it seems that Luke says, and now that the line has been drawn, Jesus now turns to organize his following. For the ministry that is to come, for the message that will be delivered, and ultimately for the redemption that will be provided, Jesus organizes his folks. But Luke tells us that he went up on a mountain to pray all night long. Now, as I read that and as I study that, I just need to tell you, that convicts me. Because if I think about of all of the nights that I have spent in my 49 years, I know it's hard to believe I'm that old. Of all of the nights that I've spent, I can't think of too many that I could count that were all night in prayer. There have been a few. Some really scary things that have kept me up. And trying to go to sleep, I could not. And so then, as a response, I... Spend some time with the Lord until I drift off. And he contended in prayer all night. The God-man, one with the Father, co-equal with the Spirit. Yet the God-man making a decision 
wanted his will to be in complete alliance with the Father's will. And spent the night in prayer. I think this gives us a picture that could be confusing to us about Jesus' humanity. About the incarnation and, and, and how it is that holy God that, that knows all and does all and is the source of all righteousness and power and limited humanity that's broken and, and, and has sickness and ailment and, and is under the curse of sin comes together to form the God-man, though he has never sinned and never would, he's united in such a way that his godness doesn't interfere with his humanity and his humanity doesn't counteract his godness and he's one and together and he's both at the same time. 100% God, 100% man. You don't understand it, neither do I, but I think this gives us a very interesting picture. Jesus didn't go into this decision saying, well, I already know who I'm going to pick. In fact, I know what they're going to do. I know how they're going to respond. His humanity is at work. And his will is submitted. Pastor Kevin, you're saying you don't know if Jesus knew who he was going to pick? I'm saying I don't understand how this and this work. But I can see what Luke says. And I can see that all night he spent with the Lord in prayer. Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples. Now, don't see that as him calling this group of folks we're going to list here in a second. He's calling his followers, okay? Disciple just means a listener, learner, follower. It just means someone who has heard a message heard him say or heard about him and is now curious, they're listening, they're learning, hopefully so that they might follow in that one's footsteps, a disciple. He called all of those. At this time, there would have already been many. He's done some amazing works and he's just in around Galilee. I've been over there. It's one of the greatest experiences you could ever to see and hear and taste and touch the, the area that Jesus would have walked in. I know it's 2,000 years built up, but to be under that sky with those pla- See, a Galilee's still there. So you're able to watch and go, wow, it's so from here to there, I can see all the way over there. I can, I can see you wave. And so, okay, so it's very close. Word got out. Jesus has got a lot of folks wondering and watching and curious. And after praying all night, he calls his disciples together and he chooses from them 12. Whom he named, or, or we could say renamed. They're not just disciples. They're not just learners. They're those that Jesus has, has done a work in front of that are following him. They're the ones that he's come up to and said, follow me. There's one that says, hey, y'all want to drop that and follow me? They're all of them together and they're wondering what he's going to say and he chooses on purpose. What I'm going to call a very motley crew. Not the 80s rock band, a very bizarre cast of characters. Of all of the folks that he could have picked, 
he's probably about to choose 11 of the biggest losers in the whole crowd and one guy that they would say, yeah, I understand why he picked him. He chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. It's a word that means a messenger called on purpose, a representative of the master. I'm calling you my apostle because I want you to represent me. I want you to follow me. I want you to be closely associated with me. And and the idea of apostleship carried authority, not their own authority, but ultimately a messenger on mission from the master would be able to speak for the master on the basis of his authority. And so Jesus is now taking these 12 out of the group that is following and listening and spending time together with him. He's calling these 12 to be an inner circle, an entourage, if you will. Apostles, directly associated. And at random, Jesus chooses his bad news bears. Out of this group, he chooses four uneducated, crass fishermen. One of the favorite times of the business world in my life when I was working before ministry was when I had the privilege of, uh, of managing a concrete company. So, you know, you, you get... You get calls in, I need 7,500, 400, 8,000 yards of concrete, whatever it is. And we had concrete trucks. Concrete trucks need concrete truck drivers. Concrete truck drivers are a hoot. They talk ugly. They, they talk really, really ugly, actually. Um, they are not a great influence for your children to be around. Wouldn't, wouldn't recommend them for babysitting. That probably wouldn't be. Uh, you know, the loyalty. But I love those guys because they were real. And they were rough. And, and they picked on me. You know, because they, they, I'm college educated and I'm sitting behind the desk and I'm typing on the computer. And they're, they're out there doing the real work. I know that because they would tell me that every day. <laughs> I love those guys. I'm being serious. I love them. But probably not putting them together as like a presentation team for the ministry. Going, you know, because you just don't know what you got. And you're like, eh, I'm not suited for that. That's, that's the first four guys Jesus chooses. These blue collar, out all day, sweaty, stinky know the language and know how to use it and probably not the best folks you're going to have for the dinner party. Right off the bat, he chooses these. He chooses a hated tax collector. He chooses a radical nationalist. He chooses a cynic, a doubter, three relative nobodies, and one guy probably well-suited and qualified to be their financial manager who ironically came from a different place, we believe, than the others. He named apostles, 12 of them. It's no coincidence that there are 12 apostles 
12 tribes of Israel. God's a God of order. Don't let that surprise you. They're not directly associated. Simon is for him. No, just see that what Jesus is doing has a continuation of what he, through the Old Testament, has already done. He chooses 12. Simon, whom he named Petros, Cephas, the stone, the rock. And Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, the fisherman, who pulled in more catch at the time of day that they should not have even been fishing than they had catched all night long, than they had catched, sorry, honey, than they had caught. <laughs> She's going to rub that in today, I promise you. Than they had caught all night long. <laughs> yeah, now I'm just totally off. Totally off my track. Okay. Four fishermen. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. And then he called Philip, a nobody. Bartholomew, a cynic. Bartholomew probably went by the name Nathaniel in other places. This is the one that Philip went and got and said, Hey, I think we found him. Who are you talking about? The Messiah. Where is he from? Well, he's from Nazareth. Nathaniel goes, Really? Has anything good come out of Polk? I mean, Nazareth? Hey, I'm one of y'all now. Been here 13 years, still waiting on the card, but I've got, I'm one of you. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Jesus speaks into where he's living and starts showing that not only can something good come out of Nazareth, but somebody who knows him that he's never met before came out of Nazareth. Bartholomew, Nathaniel says, I think I'm going to follow you. And Matthew, we've already seen him. Levi, the one sitting at the tax booth that everybody hated. Matthew, you want to follow me? Yeah, I'll follow you. Shoot, let's throw a party. Got Jesus in trouble, and now Jesus is going, and Matthew. And I can just imagine the collective gasp in that group. (gasps) He's picked the dirty tax collector. And Thomas, well, y'all know what he gets the bad rap for, right? He's the doubter, except we'll, we'll go forward a little bit in the story. I believe John's gospel where Jesus says, hey, let's go down to Bethany. Our friend Lazarus is dead, and we need to go down there to him. And they're all going, you don't need to go down there, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to go down there because I want to show them. I want to show you who I really am. It was Thomas who said, well, in that case, let's just get ourselves dressed and go down there and die with him. So he was the doubter. He's also a little bit of a poor planner, Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus, no idea. Know what his daddy's name is, but they have no idea about him. And Simon, who was called a zealot. He said, what is the zealot? Make Israel great again. Lost half of you just now, didn't I? You're going to be mad at me the rest of the sermon, aren't you? He was a nationalist. So imagine in Israel, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, a group called the Essenes, and the Zealots. The Zealots were the group of nationalists that didn't mind employing a little violence if it would help promote their national cause against Rome that they hated. 
So if you can just imagine Matthew in his blue I'm with her shirt and Simon in his red make yours look great again. That's the kind of tension. We got an Israeli Democrat and an Israeli Republican. And Jesus said, hey, why, don't y'all, <laughs> why don't y'all sit there together? Okay. And Judas, again, not really sure who he is, the son of James. And then Judas Iscariot. There are some scholars that believe that Iscariot is actually a Greek rendition of the Hebrew word Ishkarioth, which would mean man of Kerioth, which was a city in southern Judea. It would have been a city in the area in which when King David was on the run from Saul and he was out in the wilderness, that would have been the area of Kerioth in southern Judea. So we've got most likely 11 Galileans and this one guy from southern Judea. And Jesus goes, that's my twelve. And can you just imagine how the people are looking at this group? And I'm like, Jesus, you, you don't have one lawyer. You don't have a physician. You don't have anybody with money. You don't have anybody. I mean, Jesus, really, none of y'all spent any time in the, in the, the, the Jewish seminary. You're a rabbi that nobody had ever heard of. I mean, we get, you got power, man. We're following you. We, we, we don't know what all you can do, but these guys? I heard one teacher explain, and, and, and I looked for some, some background, and I, I don't know if I just don't have his book, but I heard one teacher explain that when every child, especially the male children, were growing up in synagogue as little boys, they would all go through the, the rigor of, of the religious teaching. They would all go through the synagogue teaching and, and, and they would let the, the smartest of the crowd rise to the top. And then from those, the rabbis would pick the individuals they wanted as a part of their group of, of inner circle learners. So the really smart, the really uh, uh, ones of ability would be chosen. And, and, and as a parent, you wanted your kid to be a part of a, of a rabbi's following because the rabbis seem to always have all the resources. They seem to have all the money. They seem to have all the opportunity. And so you wanted your kid to grow up. And not only that, you wanted them to learn the principles of the Old Testament because... You valued your faith. And so all of these, at the very least, would have gone through synagogue school and maybe got a wave on the way out, which is why they went to fishing, collecting taxes, Joining, I mean, a very close to terroristic group of nationalists. And that's who Jesus picked. Oh, except for that one guy who we'll learn from this and other gospels was pretty good with money. Who we know is going to turn out to be the one traitor. The bad news bears that Jesus picked on purpose. 
All right, boys, come together. All right? You with me? You, you're going to? You, you, are you, are you you're going? Okay, you too? Yeah, everybody's willing to go? Okay. So let's go down and let's meet with the people and let's start ministry. And so day one, verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They're all gathered. Jesus and his cast of characters. The misfits he chose on purpose and now he's going to show them the ministry he will use to prepare them. It's a ministry made up of three things. All of these gathered together in verse 18 who came first to hear him. A ministry of preaching and teaching the message of the kingdom. The good news of God. Messiah is here. Righteousness is needed to enter into his kingdom and he's the one to show you the way of righteousness. They came to hear him, his preaching, and to be healed of their diseases. A ministry of healing the sick. You say, wait a minute. Jesus can heal the sick, not these guys. Just hold on a little while. Because eventually, Jesus is going to send them out two at a time. And he's going to give them power and authority to preach on his behalf and heal the sick on his behalf. For what purpose? To call them to Jesus. To believe the message that they preached. And to understand that what God had promised was coming to pass. They came to hear him, his preaching, his teaching, to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. A ministry of preaching, healing the sick, casting out demons. Jesus is showing these boys, these men, the ministry that they will, on his behalf, go and continue. For his glory. For the progress of the message. And the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them. In case you forget, Jesus is the source of all power. And anything he will ever give us charge to accomplish on his behalf. We see the misfits... He chose on purpose. We see the ministry he would use to prepare them. While one would certainly depart traitorously, he'd be replaced. The 11 plus the replacement would be transformed by their master over a period of a little more than three years into an unimaginable group of world changers which have been used directly in the progress of you and I hearing the truth that God put on flesh so that he might represent us 
as a holy sacrifice without blemish. Paying for your sin, for my sin. Doing for us what we could not do on our own. Defeating hell. Defeating death. Defeating sin. And was raised victorious. And able to provide his righteousness for us. At no cost to us. At all cost to the Father. We can be set free, forgiven, brought into the family. And those ragtag bunch of nobodies were transformed by our Lord to bring us that message. What are some applicational points that we can put on ourselves, that we can walk away from here and put to practice today? Well, I've got six of them. So if you'll indulge me, I'll give you these six. Number one, effectiveness as a follower of Jesus will never be about what you bring to the table. When you think about yourself, if you are a follower of Jesus by faith, (coughs) and by the way, there is no other way but by faith in Jesus through his death and resurrection. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need never to think about what an asset you are to the one who saves you. Because all you are, according to Isaiah, filthy rags. The best you can do is filthy rags. But in Christ, I would ask the teenagers what that means. I'm going to put them on the spot. In Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It's never going to be about what you bring to the table but it is going to be about you coming to the table. Because at the table, what you'll do is receive from the one who has what you can use for his glory in his calling. That's for you who think he could never use me. Yes, he could. Yes, he can. Yes, he will, if you'll just bring all that's broken in you to the table and let him do the work. Number two, God loves to pick impossible broken people to accomplish his radically divine purpose. You see, number one, y'all heard, but some of you in the room You just let that go in one ear and out the other because you think yourself so broken. You think yourself so unusable. You think yourself so throwaway that God could never use you. Listen to this. God loves to pick impossibly broken vessels to restore and use. Would anybody argue that the Apostle Paul was a bad dude before he came into contact with our risen Savior? The man was ancient ISIS. He was the leader of a terror organization trying to stomp out Christianity. Can it get any worse than that? Putting people in jail who named the name of Christ. Killing folks if it was necessary. And what did Jesus do? Stopped him in the road and went, 
Do I have your attention? Aren't you tired of doing that stuff? And blind on his knees, Saul goes, whatever you say, Lord. Because God loves picking impossibly broken folks to use in a radically divine way. So no matter how broken you feel, He wants to use you. And He will. If you'll just bring all of that brokenness. Okay, Lord, that's all I got. It's all I want, He'll say. And He'll repair you into a vessel of grace. Number three. The church is a crazy, diverse group of individuals, often with Jesus and the gospel as the only common denominator. You realize that the church is designed as a place where blue t-shirt wears and red t-shirt wears and hat-forward folks, and hat-backward folks, hat-sideways folks, hair folks, no hair folks, old folks, young folks, folks that are a little bit country, folks that are a little bit rock and roll, folks who only think classical is worth the time, folks who any of it just makes my ears hurt, folks with opinions, folks with pasts, Folks that vote different and think different and post different things that make you mad, make you happy. The church is designed to be a place where all of those folks come together with one common denominator. Jesus and his gospel. But lest you think that's the way it's supposed to stay, what Christ will do as that common denominator, if we'll let him is He will make all of those other thoughts and opinions and allegiances become so immaterial. In fact, maybe even unnecessary. So that He becomes more and more and more and more and more the common denominator. Because that's what glory is going to be like in eternity. Every tribe... Every nation, every tongue, every culture, everything coming together for one purpose. Him. The church is designed to be that. Where we all set aside those things that divide us so that we might focus on the thing that unites us. Which leads to number four. If some in the body of Christ make you uncomfortable, well then Jesus, who chooses on purpose, probably put them there to do his work in you. Because you know that exists, right? We can amen that Christ needs to be that central, unifying principle. But we still decide where we're going to sit based on who's down the road. Or where we're going to be based on who's going to be there. 
or who we're going to friend based on how they did this, that, or the other. You can't escape it. Jesus probably said, yeah, you, they bother you? Yeah, come on, I want you to sit right there, right there. Now, don't go stand out in the foyer. There's a seat there. Sit there. Charlie's a good guy. Anyway, sorry, pick on him. Jesus will do that to work on you. You're hoping he'll change them, and he's trying to do his work on you and me. Verse number five. Or not verse number five. Point number five. Not everyone's going to stay. We're going to see it. It's going to take us a long time to get there, but we already know what's going to happen. Number 12, he's not going to stay. And as we follow Christ, you know what? Not everybody's going to stay. Some folks will abandon the faith. Some folks will break your heart. You've been chosen by him. If you know him as Savior, you have been. Keep going. Don't, Don't let their decision to walk away cause you to doubt and wonder or follow, press on. And then lastly, every Christian should have someone actively discipling them and someone or someones they are actively discipling. What do you mean by that, Kevin? I mean, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's your responsibility to seek out someone who's been following Jesus longer than you have. And you're watching them live out the things that, that you're trying to follow Christ on. You're trying to put to practice and you're seeing them do it. They might not even be older than you. They've just been following longer. It's your responsibility to come alongside them and say, Hey, could I go buy you a cup of coffee? Yeah, sure, what's up? Well, I just, hey. I just want to spend some time with you. And then as you're sipping whatever it is you're drinking, you look at them and you say, I know this might sound a little bit weird, but I've been watching your life. I'm watching you follow Jesus. Could we just spend some time together? Because I just, I need, I need someone pouring into me. Would you have time to do that? That is causing some of you great anxiety right now. Because you're like, I could never do that. You need that. You need that in your life. And in the same vein, you know what you need? Somebody who hadn't been following Jesus quite as long as you have. Well, what am I supposed to say to them? Same thing. Hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Could, could we go get a bite one time? Yeah, sure. What's up? I just want to talk to you. And then as you're sitting there sharing that meal, you go, listen, I just, I don't know. I, we, we have a lot in common. I think we have similar sense of humor. I, I just... I like having folks in my life that I can be iron on iron with. You know, just kind of doing life together. You don't have to tell them, I would like to pour myself into you and lead you. No, you just say, I just like to, I like to do life with one another. You know, and just as you grow and I grow, but you know in your mind what you're doing is saying, Lord, would you use me in her life and his life? That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to spend the next three years spending time, Sharing meals, sharpening <laughs> these really dull instruments into the book of Acts and the vessels that the Holy Spirit will use. Well, it's the same process today.
If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've been here today and you go, well, I know about Jesus, today would be a great day for you to go. So what you're saying is, he died for me. Yes. He rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. So he's alive now. You really believe that? Absolutely. I got to quit doing this. So what do I do to become a, a believer? Just that. Just surrender yourself to the one who gave himself for you and rose from the dead to secure your redemption. Lay your yes down with him and get up today a follower of his, looking for somebody to pour into you, somebody you can pour into with that message of good news. If you don't know Jesus today, you can receive him today. I hope you'll not leave here without him. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you that the 12 he chose were really from every human expectation, bad choices. But we're so thankful that, uh, that they're no worse than us. And God, that they just represent humanity. Nobody deserved to walk with Him. Nobody was prepared to walk with Him. He chose them. And he prepared them. By faith, he launched them. I pray that will be what you do in this little church right here. God, I pray that you will use us not only to be messengers of the gospel, that calls clear, but that in that process we might make disciples. Being a disciple ourselves, letting those who have walked with you longer pour into us, and finding those that we can invest in on purpose so that it might continue on and on and on until your son returns. That's what we're waiting on. That's what we're confident in. So we ask God that you would use us in whatever way you see fit from this moment till he returns. God, I pray for the issues, the needs that, that we all care, the burdens that we bear those that are sick, those that are hurting, those that have decisions that need to be made, those, those that are confused, those that, are, that, that are, are anxious. God, I pray that you will help them today see their way forward behind you. God, give us courage to spend more time this week in prayer, seeking you and, and, and looking to you more than we ever have because we know you have the answer. Give us the faith to wait on you for it. God, we ask that you will... Launch us into this week starting right now. We might represent you well. We love you. We trust you. First in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.